Here we go then, Daniel Fast, uh, week one, and we're going to be following uh, themes through the three weeks uh, based on the life uh, of Jesus. We're going to look this week at his majesty, next week at his message or messages, and then in the final week, his uh, miracles. And uh, as you say, you'll be handed one of these as you go. Would you only take one if you, if you need it and will use it? Uh, everything will go on to Facebook. It'll go out online on the email if you've registered for that as well. So you'll get it in lots of different, different formats. So take the paper copy um, only if you really need it. That'll save us cutting down another Amazon rainforest um, before next Sunday in printing some more. That'd be really helpful. Uh, if we're tweeting over the, not just on Sunday, but through the week and encourage you to do that, it means that people can be encouraged by the things that are being said and going on. Uh, let's use the Daniel Fast 16 uh, as the hashtag. That's got less searches on it just at the moment. So let's nab that for our Selves. And then as uh, Katie said, the next two Sundays, so next Sunday I'll be preaching at uh, Elim and you're welcome to come and join me. That's a, a genuine invitation. It's the only time when I'm not preaching you're allowed to not be here. Because rumor has it that sometimes when I'm not preaching it's, it's a different sort of Sunday. So it can be and you can come with us and then the following week Harold will be with us and guys can come uh, and come. So both Sundays, think about how you can um, swap around. We want to try and build a greater sense of uh, of togetherness as we pray with the four churches around the area. Um, Ipswich Community Church are kind of uh, joining in with us a little bit this year. Uh, you will know that we've been 12 months in the planning, so they're coming on board a little later. The leadership team at St. Matt's, Nick and gang, uh, they'll also be joining us in the fast, but not as a wider church this time. They'll be planning for next time. So, a few things about fasting as we get underway. Jesus expected us to fast. He talked about giving, and he talked about praying, and he also talked about tithing in exactly the same vein. You give, and you pray, uh, sorry, and you fast. You give, and you pray, and you fast. He talked about fasting in exactly the same way. Our culture, though, has a landscape of shrines to the Golden Arch, Pizza temples are everywhere, and fasting seems out of place. And in many senses, it has been out of place, both in the culture at large, but also among churches in particular. Uh, I grew up uh, uh, being taught at various stages of my upbringing to fast, but I was also conscious that it was not what a lot of churches were being taught or even thinking about engaging in. It is an art, a discipline, that has fallen somewhat into disrepute when we think about the church as a whole. Yet, and oddly enough, the Bible is full of examples of people fasting. The verse behind me from Zechariah is about a rhythmic group fast. There are individual fasts. There are short fasts and long fasts. There are fasts in particular seasons. They would fast at a time of crisis or emergency. They would fast at certain after as part of certain celebrations, feasting and fasting. They would fast, for example, at the Feast of Atonement and so on. 
And so right through the Bible, not just in terms of groups and characters, and uh, also individuals, all the key players in the Bible, almost, are on record as having a rhythm or at least engaging in fasting of some kind or another. If you think about Moses or David or Elijah or Daniel or Jesus or Paul, they all had rhythms of prayer and fasting. Church history, therefore not surprisingly, very early on, carried on this strong tradition of fasting. One of the the, the most um, uh, reliable and informative documents comes from about AD 100, the Didache, which is uh, about the the Christian teaching and practice at the time. So AD 30-something, Jesus died. AD 100, still very uh, early in the history of the church. And they would rhythmically fast on Wednesdays and Fridays, just as part of their uh, Christian discipline and ritual. But as you look at the sweep of history, fasting hasn't been a hugely strong discipline in the church. Although there have been great peaks when it's a great resurgence of uh, of rediscovery of its power, uh, and then other times when it's kind of slipped uh, away. In 1756, the king of Britain called for a day of fasting and solemn prayer because of a threatened invasion from the French. Do you know what happened? John Wesley writes, The fast day was a glorious day, such as London has scarce seen since the Reformation, since the Restoration, sorry. Every church in the city was more than full. Surely God heareth the prayer. And there will yet be a lengthening of our tranquility. Humility was turned to national rejoicing for the threatened invasion by the French was averted. Quite a good reason to France, some of you will say, thinking back over the history of our country. The Bible is full of it. Thirdly, fasting, and this kind of pulls us right in perhaps to the heart of everything that we want these three weeks and our learning to fast together to be all about, is that it centers our lives on God. Uh, And that's the nub of it. Whatever we do physically, whatever plans and rhythms we put in place, it's all about helping us focus our our hearts on God. It was while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said. There was something about the fast that was drawing their lives to focus on God in a new way or renewed and deliberate way. Fasting then is an act of worship. I'm doing this to focus on God. It's a discipline that puts my life day in, day out, moment in, moment out, in the place of saying, God, I'm putting you first. I want this life to be your life. I want my living to be about you living in and through me. And fasting in Scripture is always with that intent. We could fast for other reasons. There are good causes to fast for. We might fast because, in, in, or a partial fast at least, because we want to improve our physical health. 
We want to go on a diet or a renewed eating regime. We fast because we have a motive of vanity, maybe, as well as physical physique. We might fast for negative reasons. We might go on a hunger strike because we are protesting about something. And there are different motives, I think, that we can engage in as regards this particular fast. I can engage in this fast because I think in three weeks' time, I I will look much more healthy and ruddy and glorious than I do at the moment. And that might be a motivation for some of us. How I will look or feel at the end of the three weeks. You will feel a lot better. That remains to be seen as we push through to the third week. That's a a reason for engaging in the fast. Another reason to engage in the fast is is, is a sense of of kind of... um, if we name it what it is, it's religious pride. We're going to do it because at the end of it, we'll be able to say, we did it. And what a great Christian I am because I did it. And how great and pleased God will be with me because I managed to do it for three weeks. Do you know what? God will go, yeah, whatever. Whatever. Big deal. You gave up a little bit of food for three weeks. Whatever. But if the motive of our heart is that we might focus and re-root, re-center our lives on Him, then that makes all the difference in the world. Now, all of our ways, our motives seem pure to us from time to time. But motives are weighed by the Lord. And I think there's an honesty this morning. That as we come and we begin these weeks together, that says to God, look, hey, I've got all sorts of mixed motives. I'd like to get to the end because I'll feel like I've failed if I don't. I'd like to get to the end because I want to be part of what's going on. I want to get to the end because I do want to be healthier. And this is a kickstart to helping me do that at uh, at the end of the Christmas period. We have all of those motives that are real. Our motives are never solely pure. But let's lay all those motives out before God and say, Lord, above all, help me. Help my overwhelming motive and desire to bring my life, to center my life on you afresh. We'd see God do amazing things as we allow that motive, that uh, self-laying before God to emerge in our lives. There are many other things that we could say about the the purpose of fasting. It deepens our, our prayer life at great times in the scriptures when they're really pushing in to key prayer breakthroughs, they would fast. Fasting strips away self, allowing what's truly in our hearts to rise to the surface. And if you've experienced this in fasting, you'll know what I'm talking about, that, that whatever's in your heart, you become more sensitive more aware of what's going on, whereas we stuff food in and we stuff, we suppress some of those feelings and emotions or whatever it is. So, for example, you go without food and you get a little bit irritated and angry. You think, golly, I'm getting, I'm getting angry that I haven't had whatever it is today. But what's going on? Well, actually, that's not, you're not really, at the end of the day, angry about the food, but there's an anger that's rising in you that was already there. And so as we, as we lay some of our normal rhythms and our normal comforts, our normal securities to one side, it gives space for the spirit and the natural workings of our human body to, to increase our sensitivity to things that are going on in our lives. It reminds us, of course, that we are sustained by God. We think that we're invincible so often 
unless we've been particularly ill recently, and then it, it changes that sense of feeling. But it's good to be reminded, isn't it, that if you stop eating for a couple of days, you're half your former self. <laughs> not, not, not literally, some of you are wishing. Metaphorically, half your former self. That actually we are totally dependent on what grows in the ground, aren't we? Which means we're totally dependent on day and night, and we're totally dependent on the seasons, which means we're totally dependent on the God that puts all of those in place and sustains the whole thing by the power of his word. Amazing truths. Fasting achieves things that other things don't reach. When they couldn't sort out the boy with epilepsy and so on that was kicking and screaming and, 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 foaming, and, and the disciples said, we were stuffed, we just didn't know how to do that. And Jesus said, only some things, prayer and fasting. And then lastly, and perhaps I think really importantly for our week, for our weeks together, is that it increases our ability to hear God speak to us. Increases our ability. As we fast, we are drawn, it's, it's, it's part of that becoming more sensitive, we are drawn to hear God speak in a fresh and new way. Why a Daniel fast? Um, a number of times people have said over these last um, uh, weeks and months, why, why a Daniel fast? Well, th- th- there are different types of fasting, and we could have chosen something else. We could have chosen a complete fast that would have lasted 12 or 24 hours. Uh, and there is an absolute important place for a complete fast, for a few days maybe even. But for us beginners, probably 12, 24 hours would have maxed us out particular breakthroughs that we're looking for. We might earnestly fast and pray for a short period of time. But actually what would happen if we did that kind of fasting as a church is the moment would be here now and it would be gone in a jiffy. The reason that I'm committed to the Daniel fast is that it helps us over a longer period of time, and that's the key, a longer period of time, to press in to what God might have for us. So we are pushing out. We're not just going to do it today and tomorrow it's gone, but we're going to, it's going to take it into the next day and the breakthrough into the next day and into the next day. And we're going to keep pushing on and pushing through because we want to press in to what God has for us. I know that it takes a lot more effort. It takes a lot more effort because you have to prepare the food in a way that you perhaps don't in normal life. You have to buy different food and therefore you need a different menu, therefore you need different ingredients and it absolutely takes time. There is effort in it and our natural disposition is to regard the effort as bad because we are time short and we are labor pressured. But what if that extra effort is an act of worship, of bringing a sacrifice of praise? of forcing us to slow down, think a little bit more about what we're doing, what we're preparing, what we're eating. We're dependent on this God who gives us life. And then lastly, on this comment about the Daniel fast, some of you will have said, well, I've tried it and it didn't work. Now, it's hard to measure whether it works, but I understand what you mean. I've tried it and it didn't work. Just a lot of effort, a lot of heartache, and I think, well, whatever The first time I rode a bike, it didn't work. In fact, the second time I rode a bike, it didn't work very much either. And one of the things that we've noticed, and we've probably done this Daniel fast, this is the third time. Some of us, it's the fourth time. 
What we've noticed that is the first time it's all about the food and it's all about the change and trying to get your head around it all and stuff. The second time it's different. It's more about the rhythm. It's more about what God's saying. I'm interested to see what the third and fourth time are like. So encouragement to you. If you think it didn't work because it was a right load of hassle, it probably didn't work and probably was a light load of hassle. But anything that's of benefit in our lives, we have to work at, we have to lean into, we have to grow in, and so on and so forth. Spurgeon, as in the great Charles Spurgeon, said, Our seasons of fasting and prayer at the tabernacle have been high days indeed. Never has heaven's gate stood wider. Never have our hearts been nearer the central glory. Now that's not bad, is it? In a church with thousands were coming to Christ. Never has heaven's gate stood wider. Never have our hearts been nearer the central glory. That's our prayer. This week, next week, the third week. That's our prayer as we go into 2016. That that heaven's gates will be opened. And a fresh invitation for us to see Jesus in new and clearer and richer ways than we've ever seen before. Sound like a plan? Hokey doke. That was the introduction. Now for the sermon. Only a few of you laughed because most of you knew it wasn't a joke. <laughs> we often think about. Jesus, especially at Christmas time, and we focus on the miracle that God became a man. And there's a tendency to focus on the man bit, the baby bit, obviously, because it is an utter miracle that God should become a human being. And so we think about the truths that are absolutely true about Jesus, that he knows what it's like to be a human being, that he, he feels what I feel, that he's gone through what I've gone through. Uh, and we think about what it means for God to come and, and live among us and, and that message of, of we have to, to, to be incarnate, we have to live in the flesh, the kingdom of God, where God's placed us and, and so on. But for these three weeks, and especially for this week, we're going to pull back and we're going to try and think about the majesty, if you like, the divinity, the lordship, the glory, the splendor, the wonder of who Jesus really is. It's not that he's any less the man in, when we talk in these terms, but the paradox, the miracle, he's fully God and he's fully man. And sometimes in the scriptures we get amazing glimpses of the glory and the majesty of Jesus. So in Colossians chapter 1, for example, verse 15, it's not on the screen. Colossians 1:15, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all of, do you know what it says? Over all of creation. For in him all things were created. Notice the word all that keeps coming. All creation. For him in all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him, through Jesus, and for him, for Jesus. He, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So that in everything he might have supremacy. Supremacy. 
And it's that kind of lens that we want to be thinking as we go into this first week of our fast together. He is the glorious Lord of all. And as we open the pages of the Gospels and we see the stories there, we are reminded again and again of who he is. We need to embrace his majesty that he forgives sins. It was an amazing story that William read to us. Amazing moment, almost at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. They bring in this man who can't walk, he's paralyzed. Everybody knows what this man's need is. He needs to walk. And Jesus says, it doesn't matter how obvious this need is, this need for him to walk, he has a greater, deeper need, and that is for his sins to be forgiven. So I'll say to him, hey mate, your sins are forgiven, because that's what he really needs. His legs are just a temporary inconvenience for the moment, important though they are. And I can deal with your legs, but I also have a greater ability to deal with your greatest need. And so he says to the crowd, uh, as he senses their murmurings, which is it easier for me to say, son, your, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. I can do it all. And the amazing thing about that is that the crowd tuned in, religious people that they were, knew exactly what Jesus was saying because nobody on earth can forgive sins. Because they grew up in a culture where they understood that ultimately sin was not against another human being. If I smack you in the face, I might have sinned against you, but way more significantly, I have insulted and sinned against the God of heaven who made you and in whose image you are created. Does that make sense? So every sin is before God, way, way before it's before a human being. So for example, when David committed adultery with Bathsheba and had Bathsheba's husband uh, Uriah the Hittite killed just to cover up his tracks, so he'd sinned against Bathsheba and he'd sinned against Uriah, he says, to you, Lord God, only have I sinned. Do you understand? It's a sense of, of against God. And so the only person that can forgive sin if sin is against God is So if Jesus comes along and says, hey, mate, your sins are forgiven, he said, I can forgive sins as God. And he sensed, you know, when atmospheres change, suddenly the atmosphere changed. Jesus sensed the change. He says, I know what you're thinking, but hey, I'm the son of man. So what is it easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise, get up out of your bed and walk. And that's the next thing. Just in one phrase, he drives them wild because he says, hey, I'm the son of man, which was one of the Old Testament titles of the long-awaited savior and rescuer. So Jesus in one foul swoop, he says, hey, I am exactly equal to God because I can forgive sins and I am the one that you've always longed for and waited for through the whole history of the nation of Israel. I am that person. God himself here in your midst. And very soon after that, they tried to find a way to kill him. Let's make no mistake about it. Jesus got nailed to a cross, not because he liked homeless guys and hung out with loose women. He got nailed to a cross because he claimed again and again and again and again, I am God, the Son of God. And if you speak against me in that way, it's a blasphemy. And they accused him, of course, of blasphemy again and again and again in the Gospels. And when they would question him, he would say, look, look at the evidence. If you can't believe it, 
If you think that I'm blaspheming every time I say that or indicate or imply or just say outright, I'm God's son. If you think I'm blaspheming, then look at the miracles. Look at the way I'm living. I am doing the very things you would expect God to do if God was here in your midst. Embrace his majesty. He does God's work. He is the Son of Man. He's able to forgive our sins. Embrace His majesty. Jesus is without sin. This is amazing, isn't it? That there is some person, God Himself, who has lived our life yet utterly pure and sinless. The reason that I say it's amazing is this. Is that if anyone was to say about you... That person has never done anything wrong. All I would need to do is find your mother. And there would be another story. Or your spouse. Or your brother. Or your sister. Or your children. In fact, anyone who's ever met you, almost. And they would go, actually, Jesus' mother, Jesus' brothers, Jesus' family, the people that lived with him day in, day out, got to the end of their own lives. With the declaration that there was nothing wrong in him. Look into the eyes. Embrace Jesus. Who is pure and perfect and radiant and without guile. Even Judas who betrayed him. Pilate who sentenced him. Soldiers who executed him. The prisoners who died with him. All said he was innocent. And therefore embrace his majesty. He is the judge of all. If you're without sin, and if you're God with the ability to forgive, you have the right to judge. And we will often say to one another, well, what right do you have to judge me? And there's some truth in that. We do not have a right in in that sense to judge one another. To judge someone is God's doing. That's God's prerogative. And the religious culture of Jesus' time knew exactly that. God was the one who would judge. God is the one who would make decision. He was the one that would pass sentence. And Jesus says, well, actually, I'm the one. I'm the one that makes those kind of judgments. If you read on in the passage, I'm the one that makes judgments about this life and the next life. I'm the one that decides how it all plans, plays out and pans out. I can judge you, says Jesus. I will judge you, says Jesus. And part of that becomes less comfortable for us. But we have to remember that the Jesus that we worship and embrace is himself the Lord of all, who's perfect and glorious, and we are sinful and broken before him and in need of his grace and his mercy. Which is why, at the beginning of his ministry, there's a little cameo with a paralytic man where Jesus says, right from the outset, This is what you need to know about me. I forgive sins. Isn't that beautiful? The Jesus who could come to judge is the Jesus who's come to save. Embrace his majesty, he answers prayer as God. We pray day in, day out to Jesus. Not because he's some other religious leader, but because he is the Lord of all. And it will be the greatest, sorry, it would be the greatest um, deception of all time if Jesus is not able to answer prayers. All around the world today, people will cry out to Jesus. 
or cry out to him in hospitals and at gravesides, in times of crisis or in trouble. Children will lie down at night and pray to Jesus before they sleep. Adults will kneel at their bedside and pray to Jesus before they sleep. All clinging, hoping, looking to Jesus. If he's not God, it's utterly pointless. It's an absolute global deception. If he is not the Lord of all, and able to answer our prayers. And he makes this promise. I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. And you may ask me for anything in my name, and I will dot, 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 dot. Embrace his majesty. He's the only way to heaven. The only way to heaven. This is uncomfortable, isn't it? In our world that wants there to be lots of ways and lots of people and multi-choice. In a world that wants life to be like a multiple choice exam, only that every answer is right. And Jesus says it's not like that. It's not like that because we stand guilty before a holy God. It can never be like that because there are things in us, there is this massive need, the the paralytic man, just one of of billions of us, uh, not just have broken things in our lives, but utterly need the forgiveness and mercy of God. And Jesus says, look, in that that complete um, diversity of life in this world, you need to know I'm the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. What about other religions? Jesus says, look, I'm the way. And what about other lifestyles? And he says, I'm the way. And what about other, uh, those of no faith, unsure of faith, unknown faith? Jesus says, look, I'm the way. It focuses all down on me. And as soon as we accept Jesus as the way, then all hell breaks loose in the heavenly place. And all hell will break loose as we begin a Daniel fast that focuses on Jesus. And some of you will know, even this weekend, of all kinds of things that you're struggling with. If you'd been here earlier on this morning, as we're getting ready for all sorts of, the number of things that haven't gone right this morning, in inverted commas, is, is, is multiple more times than normal. And in a sense, it's to be expected. Because we have a Jesus whose truth needs to be declared. A Jesus that needs to be honored above all else. And as we seek to do just that, as we seek to declare that he is the one with all authority, all the others that think they're something get a little bit jittery. That's how it works, isn't it? In the playground. When someone walks into the playground, it's a little bit tougher than all the other guys. All the other guys that thought they were tough, they toughen up a little bit. And so the, the, the enemy kingdom is toughening up today, strengthening their muscles back to the gym because it's going to be a fight. But Jesus is Lord. And he says, just to be absolutely sure, right at the end of his ministry, he says, look, look, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I've got it all. I am above it all. There is nothing that is above me, even death itself. I have supremacy over all peoples, over all political parties, over all races, over all genders, all beliefs, all nations, all religions, all cultures. I'm over all of it. Jesus rules over the angels and the demons. He rules over uh, uh, people of all kinds of walks of life. He rules over the Christians. He rules over the secularists. 
He rules over the feminists and the humanists and the Buddhists and the Mormons, the Unitarians, the atheists, the agnostics, the Scientologists, any other ologists you can think of. He rules over men and women and children and boys and girls. He rules over people at the end of their lives, the beginning of their lives, those in the middle scurrying about. He rules over all the philosophies, postmodernism, modernism, naturalism, existentialism. Keep them coming. He rules over it all. He's Lord of all. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That he's Lord of all. Embrace his majesty. That he's Lord of all. There is nothing more secure this coming week than to look into the eyes of a pure Jesus who can forgive you, who has the whole world in his grasp. Nothing safer than in that place. He says nothing in all creation, not even death itself, can separate you from my love. And finally, embrace his majesty. He is the great I am. The great God himself. And over these next seven days, we're going to look each day in our daily devotions together at the seven I am sayings of Jesus. I am the bread of life. What else can you think of? I am the, the way. I am the The what? The truth. I am the resurrection and the life. The true vine. I'm the gate. What haven't we got? The light of the world. Just chuck that in there. Just a small one, that. Um, I think we've got them all now. The bread of life. That light of the world. The truth and the gate. The good shepherd. Well, you'll, you'll find them all anyway. Why is it so significant? Jesus is just using metaphor. Yet, Yes, absolutely. He is using metaphor. But, but you know when you say something and everybody knows what you're talking about. So if I say in my house, where's the salad door? <laughs> Everyone knows what I'm talking about. Because there's a cultural understanding. Comes from an episode in Gavin and Stacey, if you must know. Uh, watch all of them and find out which one it is, because I can't remember. Um, uh, and we say things, don't we? And and, and just just the saying it takes on a, on a huge meaning, right? Press pause. Way back in the Old Testament, when God was beginning to work with His people, He called a young chap called Moses. He sorted Moses out, then He spoke to him through a burning bush, and He said, "I want you to go down to Egypt, and I want you to bring out My people and tell Pharaoh to shove off." That's the message version. Uh, and bring the people out of, out of Egypt. And Moses says, I'm a bit scared. I don't know what to say. My knees are knocking, all the usual stuff that we might say. And then Moses thinks, I know, another excuse. I don't know what to call you, God. What, if they say, which God is this? I don't know what to say. And God says, say, I am. That was it. It's where the Jewish people get Yahweh from. They dropped some of the words because it was so precious. They didn't want to pronounce it. Tetragrammaton, the Yahweh. They wouldn't want to write it down uh, or, or repeat it out loud. It's so precious to them. This was God's 
name. Not just any God, but the sovereign God, the one that was bigger than all the other gods, the one who was the creator of all things, the one who was outside all the little tin pot deities that were covering all the little nations like they believed at the time. Remember when God said to Abraham, I want to leave your father's house. I want you to leave your understanding that each different little group of people is ruled by their own God. I want you to leave all that behind and know that there is one glorious God and I want you to follow me to the land that I will show you. Amazing truths. And so when God says to Moses, I am, it became the most precious thing. So, fast forward a few thousand years, Jesus is going, and it's hard in the English because we lose it, much more powerful in the original languages and the way they translate it in the Greek. Basically, Jesus goes, I am the light of the world. I am. The good shepherd. And of course, the religious guys are freaking out. Because you're not even supposed to say it. Let alone be claiming it for yourself. And so I want you to think every day, when you get into the scriptures, and you think about the truth, this is the God of heaven of whom it's true. This is Jesus himself, who you belong to, and who belongs to you. It's an extraordinary, unique claim. And apart from a few real crackpots, nobody's really made that claim. We don't live in a world, actually, where loads of people have claimed to be God. As I say, there are a few people that have done it, a few cults, and they've ended pretty quickly. But none of the major religions have someone that claims to be God. No other major faith, no other significant tradition, this is totally unique. And if it's true, it's incredibly true. If it's wrong, we might as well go home, even before we start. But when they said that about Jesus, he said this, there will come a time when you'll nail me to a cross, and on the third day, I will rise again. But if that's not proof enough for you, then I probably can't help you. Again, that's my paraphrase of what it says. Gloriously true. And the invitation this week, the invitation over these weeks of this Daniel fast, is to embrace him, to love him, to serve him, to bow at his feet, to worship, to adore him, to know that he is God above all. And in him we put our trust. Let's be quiet for a moment as the band comes.